Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many, many more. Today, I'm joined by an essayist, memoirist, poet and fiction writer whose recent book takes an unflinching look at the mythologies of whiteness. A third generation Japanese-American, David Mura has written intimately about his life and the connections between race, culture and history. In his latest book, Stories of Whiteness, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, he examines the embeddedness of white supremacy within American culture and the stories America tells itself to avoid confronting it. His last book prior to this was A Stranger's Journey, Race, Identity and Narrative Craft in Writing. And he's also the co-editor of We Are Meant to Rise, Voices from Minneapolis to the World. David, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I love the title, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself. I think it's very much something that this uh, podcast has tried to reference or unpick as well. Um, what inspired the title? Uh, actually, at first, it was the subtitle. And then my agent said, you should just make it the title. And once he said that, I realized that that should be the title. I think <clears throat> the thing is that my last book, I wrote about the the necessity for dealing with the issues of race and uh, teaching creative writing and how that affects the way people structure narratives and fiction. And so then I, I uh, what happened here was the death of Philando Castile, who was murdered by a policeman, and then George Floyd happened, the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And as I began examining all the issues around this, I found myself going further and further back into history and the origins of slavery and not just the origins of slavery, but the ideology, the thoughts that constructed uh, the way Americans understand race, which many Americans don't really understand or know about. They don't know. We don't know about our racial history. We're not taught that in our schools. Mm. And so, um, obviously, the stories whiteness tells itself has the term whiteness in it. Whiteness is obviously a very contested term. A lot of people also don't understand whiteness. They get concerned that we meet everybody with white skin and that this is somehow uh, a personal attack. What do you mean by whiteness? <clears throat> whiteness originally was devised in order to distinguish white people from black people and from Native Americans. And it was used as a group identity, but that group identity uh, happened in contrast to the state of African Americans, to the state of Native Americans, to who they were, to, uh, and as I say in my book, America began with two uh, conflicting goals. One goal was to create uh, a, a nation based on freedom, equality, and democracy, 
And the other goal was the establishment and maintenance of white supremacy and the control that the white population um, practiced over people of color in America. And we're fine with the telling of history according to uh, an idea of progress where at every stage we're, we're moving towards equality, democracy, and freedom. We're not fine with telling the story of the establishment and maintenance of white supremacy in American history or in American present. So you have the story that whiteness tells itself, right? That white people tell themselves that are tend to dominate the picture that we learn in history that up until very recently was portrayed in films, you know, things like The Birth of the Nation, Gone with the Wind, or even, you know, films from the 50s and 60s um, that talk about our history in a way where all the white patriarchal heroes are unblemished. We don't deal with their racism. We don't deal with their racist thoughts. Um, and they're pictured as noble and valiant. And um, what is missing are the voices, the narratives, the perspectives of people of color. And in order to understand America, we have to tell all these different stories. Mm. And so obviously, um, would you say that the absence of those voices has contributed in in the create, creation of these narratives that you say we find within film and popular culture um, is um, has contributed to a sort of one dimensional perspective of American history. And and given that obviously white people don't sit around kind of deciding that they're going to tell a particular vision of history, how does that narrative, that kind of coherent narrative of whiteness, which is essentially a narrative of white supremacy, emerge? It emerges partly because that's the way history has been taught for years and years and years. It, It emerges not only because that's the way it's been taught, but right now, we in America are engaged in a struggle over the education of children. And there have been attacks on the teaching of race, the teaching of the narratives and tales of LGBTQ individuals in the schools and other people of color. Um, And it is simply an objection to the truth on one level. It just, these stories happen, these perspectives are true, these narratives are true, and it is also the truth of what America has been. You know, we worship, you know, the way I talk about Jefferson in the book, I say, say you have this person who's a brilliant thinker, a brilliant writer, an inventor, an architect. He helped uh, craft the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. He was instrumental in the founding of America and American ideals. He's the one who wrote the Uh, All men are created equal, which, of course, did not include women. But um, he also owned uh, 500 to 600 slaves. And he was the leading ideologist for white supremacy during his time and for arguing for the necessity of slavery and the exclusion of African-Americans from any picture of America or from any notions of equality. And this, despite the fact that he had five children by the slave Sally Hemings, who was only 16 when he got her pregnant, okay? And he did never free the 
mother of his children. And you think about it, Sally Hemings is one quarter black, which means that their children were one eighth black and people remarked on their resemblance to Jefferson. And yet he never freed their mother. So if, if I were to tell you the second bit of information, you would say this man certainly was a racist. This man was, would have been today arrested for, for sexual crimes. Um, and we have to deal with this, that he could write all men are created equal and yet argue that African-Americans were not equal. Mm. And that's just our history. And one of the things I maintain is if you don't tell the truth about history, you can't tell the truth about the present. Because the false narratives that we create about the present instruct us how to create false narratives about the false narratives we create about the past then inform the way we tell narratives of the present. So one of the effects of, of all of this was is that um, white knowledge is always deemed superior. White knowledge is always deemed true. White knowledge is always official. White knowledge judges black knowledge. Black knowledge and narratives are always subjective, are always subject to white judgment, are always uh, invalid and unobjective unless white people deem their narratives and perspectives to be true and objective. What this means is that the very basic of how we deal with knowledge and narratives, we still practice white supremacy because we don't we don't acknowledge the truths and the validity of the narratives and truths embedded in um, the way African-Americans and other people of color tell our history and talk about our present. And when people say there's a long line between Jefferson and now, that judgment of knowledge happens every single time there's an incident between the police and people of color in, in our country. Uh, because there's an official white narrative of the police, which then Fox News and all these people try to back up and say is true. And then there's narratives of perspective of people of color. So um, presumably that, um, or maybe you can help me understand that official narrative of the police that you're referring to would be the idea of, you know, law and order. The police are just here to protect, you know, law and order, safety, security, whereas I guess African-American communities have experienced the police in very different terms, that they weren't safe from the police, that the, the police were to be feared and, and continue to be feared, obviously, in light of what we have seen. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I want to ask you lots of things. I wanted to ask you about kind of your, your background and how you came into wanting to write about these themes. But you, you touch on sort of the, the epistemology of knowledge and the ways in which um, knowledge creation, even in 2022, continues to be markedly um, blinkered to the centrality of whiteness in knowledge production. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could um, tell me a little bit about um, how, um, how that knowledge production impacts um, the perpetuation of whiteness within our societies 
um, and also the extent to which um, the challenge that we see from decolonial scholars who, who, you know, are advocating that actually when we think about, you know, I'll, I'll take philosophy as one example, but, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, philosophers are all old white European men, you know, is obviously inherently problematic. The idea that the only people that came up with kind of deep and profound ideas about the world could, could only ever have been uh, European men. And I think although some people are starting to kind of acknowledge that, that hasn't really been rebalanced as far as I can see in our popular culture by a sort of increasing understanding or reverence or recognition of um, other poles in in terms of intellectual output. So, yes, I've got multiple questions in one there for you. OK, well, let me start with myself. I'm a third generation Japanese American. What that means is in the way that Asian Americans are constituted in American culture, is I'm still often regarded as foreign. People ask me where I come from, and I say Chicago, and they go, no, where are you from? I go, uh, Skokie, it's a Jewish suburb of Chicago. And they go, no, really, where are you from? And I know what they're asking, right? So my grandfather came to America in 1898. So my family has been here nearly a century and a quarter, but people still associate me with Japan. If you were uh, an Irish American, a Swedish American and your family came in 1898, nobody would be asking you where you're from other than, you know, Minneapolis or Wilmer, Minnesota. So when my grandfather came here, he was not allowed by law to become citizens. He was not allowed to own property. He, um, the immigration from Japan was in Asia was stopped in, in 1924 by the Asian Exclusion Act, which was a racist Immigration Act, which barred immigration from the rest of the world other than white countries. In during World War II, because uh, uh, of the attack by Japan, America imprisoned 120,000 Japanese Americans in uh, concentration camps in desolate areas of the American West, behind barbed wire fences, under rifle towers with guards. Um, my parents were 11 and 15 at the time. They were imprisoned in camps you know, behind barbed wire. They were not given a trial, and yet they were born here. They were natural-born citizens. Um, and it, did, it took 40 years for America to recognize, and one of the things that came out was the FBI had found that the Japanese-Americans were not a military threat. But they lied to the public. They lied in... Uh, court when these cases came up in courts and at the Supreme Court. And when these lies were discovered and when Japanese Americans protested this, uh, Ronald Reagan in the U.S. Congress finally apologized to our community and said there was no military necessity for racism for, for the internment camps, that the real reasons for the internment camps were race prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a failure of leadership. Now, what this means for the failure of history is when Donald Trump was asked about the internment camps. He said, I don't know, you would have had to been here, been there, which implies that there must have been some great scare from the Japanese American community that justified it. But it also means he didn't know that the FBI had determined that the Japanese were not a threat. He didn't know that Reagan and Congress had apologized to the Japanese American community. And instead, he and his minions used the internment camps as a precedent 
for anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant measures. So this history, this not, and the other thing I want to say about this is what people don't realize, the reason why we need all these different stories is diversity is our strength. I just did a documentary on the Japanese Americans who served in the military intelligence service in the Pacific. Because at the beginning of the war, America had German speakers, they had Italian speakers. But the only people who spoke Japanese were Japanese Americans. And yet they had put in Japanese Americans in prison. So they recruited these men oftentimes from camps while their families were in prison. And they went and studied Japanese and went out in the Pacific Theater and served as battlefield guides, as interrogators of prisoners, as translators of captured messages and documents. And General MacArthur's chief of intelligence, General Charles Willoughby, said that the Japanese Americans shortened the war in the Pacific by two years and saved probably a million American lives. Which means there are anti-immigrant, anti-Asian white Americans today who are actually alive because of the work these soldiers, Japanese American soldiers did in the Pacific. And, you know, people know about the Navajo codebreakers. People don't know about these Japanese Americans. You know, and it strikes me, you know, in, in Britain, they had, you had Alan Turing, who also his work on, on uh, codebreaking shortened the war by two years. And yet after the war, he was arrested for his homosexuality and eventually committed suicide. And rather than seeing that this gay scientist was part of the greatness of Britain, right? That you had somebody like this, he was hounded at, and, and, and arrested. Well, it's the same thing with the Japanese Americans. So it's not only that we need to know the mistakes in our history, the racism, but we also need these narratives because we need to see all the contributions that people of color have made to America and have contributed to making this country great. Do you um, ever worry, because I've heard this critique expressed before, that the um, idea of sort of highlighting contributions sometimes can make it the case that minorities sort of have to prove their value to the nation. You know, white people can be, you know, bums and be, you know, completely accepted citizens. And for minorities, it's, it, it almost has to be, you know, you're an Olympic uh, swimmer or you're you know you you saved the war or you know and, and so there's almost even within that a kind of assumption that minorities have to justify their space within the nation their belonging their uh, right to claim identity uh, in a way that continues to speak to sort of the hierarchies of whiteness um, what are your what are your thoughts on that yeah I, I think that is true that there is a tendency to want you know, it's like Baldwin said, James Baldwin, the great American author, said, when people begin to discover that they've been oppressed and that wrong has been done to them, they don't necessarily come out of that being completely controlled, completely not uh, angry. Um, and, and so... This, the expectations of social protest are it should be absolutely nonviolent and non-destructive. Um, it's the same thing with with you know individuals of color that we sh we should all be 
model citizens. Now, now, and part of the story of Japanese Americans is many of them reacted to that in that way. You know, my parents, you know, the other part of my story is my parents raised me to think of myself as a white person. Yes, I did read that, that, you, 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 that your parents raised you to assimilate into white middle class identity. I did want to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So my parents, when they were in prison, it criminalized their race and ethnicity because they didn't do the same thing to Italian Americans or German Americans, even though Italy and Germany were America's enemies. They only did it to uh, Japanese Americans. And since my parents had never committed any crime, what was their crime? Their crime was the race and ethnicity. And so they sort of tried to put aside their Japanese culture. Um, they didn't talk about the camps to us. Um, and so I grew up identifying with white heroes. You know, I grew up identifying with heroes, like I mentioned in my book, like Thomas Jefferson, like Abraham Lincoln. Um, Andrew Jackson, played by Charlton Heston, uh, um, you know, General Armstrong Custer fighting the Indians, uh, the, the Native Americans. And so I identified with all these white heroes. And when, when I was in high school, a white friend would say to me, I think of you, David, like a white person. I would go, good, that's what I want to be. That's how I want to. I, I felt like I had made achievement. And it wasn't, wasn't until my late 20s that I began to read books by African-American authors and I suddenly realized, oh, I'm not white. I'm never going to be white. Who the hell am I? And that meant I had to go back and look at the internment camps, what happened to my parents, and this experience they never talked about, because I think deep down they felt, in a way, a sense of shame. But it was also a period where there wasn't civil rights protests, where nobody thought about protesting in camps except for a handful of people called the no-no boys. So I understand what it's like to think like a white person. I studied to be a white person. I imitated white people. I believed the stories that whiteness tells America. And it was only later that I began to learn, and not obviously in school, about these other narratives, these other perspectives, that my education, and I was a very educated person, I'd gone to English graduate school, I'd read through the canon as it was defined of Anglo-American literature, um, but I had not learned actually about our history. Um, when I hear you, I obviously, it's interesting to kind of extrapolate from the personal to the, from the micro to the macro, the personal to the societal, and, you know, obviously, I think, I would say this is true for myself, that the more you um, kind of, uh, engage outside of the limited narrative of whiteness, the more uh, enriching your understanding of the world is and the more um, critical you become of the, um, I'm going to call it the status quo of whiteness, the sort of basic assumptions that, that maintain and help perpetuate its existence unchallenged. And I'm wondering if that's something that people might experience at a personal level, why do you think there is so much resistance to uh, challenging, questioning, um, even just, you know, discussing whiteness in order to make it more evident to people who might otherwise be blind to its existence? I think because people have been, in many ways, brainwashed, right? They've been taught America is one thing, only one way to look at America. Um, when I talk about whiteness, I'm talking about a, a, a set of 
prescriptions and prohibitions for behavior and thought. You know, if you begin as a white person to not think the way white people are programmed to thought in this society, you will find other white people arguing with you, backing away from you. And what you will realize is, oh, as long as I didn't say anything about these things, I could be a member in good standing of the white tribe. But as long as when I begin questioning all these things, suddenly my membership in the tribe is being questioned. Right. And that's how you know that there's rules. But then how do these rules manifest themselves? Well, take a simple statistic like white Americans and black Americans smoke marijuana at the exact same rate. So if there, if, you know, marijuana is being decriminalized. But in the past, it, when it was criminalized, black people were four times more likely to be arrested than white Americans even though they both smoke marijuana at the same rate. After they were arrested, they're far more likely to go to trial, far more likely to be convicted, far more likely to serve longer sentences than white people for the same crime. Mm. Similarly, black people wait longer in emergency rooms for pain medicine for the exact same condition as white patients. They receive less pain medication than white patients for the exact same condition. Now, when we look at the police, we can believe that, you know, whatever you said, there's a few bad apples, right? Chris Rock said, yeah, well, would you want to fly in an airline that had a few bad apples? <laughs> and of course not, right? But it's systemic because those few bad apples are part, uh, Derek Chauvin who killed George Floyd had been on the police for many years, people, he was a supervisor, my God. So if this man was a supervisor, it's obviously the whole system of policing that, you know, that propped him up, that overlooked all the incidents that were in his file of racial prejudice, right? So we see this sort of systemically in the justice system. But in an emergency room, I don't necessarily believe that there's a bunch of racists in every emergency room in America, but there's an unconscious bias. There's what's called implicit bias. And we have to question, where does that come from? And it comes from everything that's there in the culture that the culture teaches us about race, about how to look at each other, how to characterize each other, how to treat each other what to expect from each other. And those are formed by racial categories that we all learn through the culture, through our education. Mm. And that includes the way we tell a history. And then that affects behavior in the present. So when people say this happened long ago, well, Jefferson's ideas are still infecting the culture. Mm. Racism is still part of the culture. Reconstruction is still part of the culture. And it's interesting uh, that you raise the argument that's uh, often given of, you know, that um, uh, that was a long time ago. I think the other one you hear a lot when you sort of try and challenge historical myths of whiteness, particularly around kind of revered figures in any given culture here. It might be someone like Churchill, you know, the, the narrative around Churchill in the UK being very idealized and, 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 and whitewashed to a large extent. And I think um, the other one you often hear is, well, things were different then. 
you know, that that those times were different and you can't judge the past by the present. And I I wonder what you respond to that, because I sort of feel like my intuitive view is, well, no one's suggesting that we go back and, you know, um, you know, uh, pull out his grave and and put put his body on trial by today's standards. But maybe it's more of a sort of when we write the books, when we just have those discussions that the the, the the picture that we present of these figures reflects the multitude of people who make up Britain today and all of the ways in which they have experienced that figure. You know, not everyone experienced Churchill as a hero, even if some people did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you respond to that? Because I think it comes up a lot, this idea of like, you know, you guys are just trying to judge the past by current standards. And if we did that, we'd throw out, you know, every figure in history ever. Yeah, it, it's a specious argument. It's a stupid argument, really. And one, one of the things that, that, that I personally hate about racism is so incredibly stupid. But, okay, let's take Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, by any measure, was a great American uh, a great thinker, um, an exceptional man. And he did help save the American Union. He did sign the Declaration, the, the Emancipation Proclamation. But at the same time, there are many statements which make it clear Lincoln was a racist and he believed white people were superior to black people. When what black ministers came to the White House, he told them, you will never be part of America. And the best of you is not equal to the least white person. Okay, so let's examine that. Let's say, oh, we have to judge Lincoln by the standards of his time. If we actually think about it, we're just judging him according to the standards of white people. Right, because those black ministers thought they were equal. Those black ministers thought they should be part of America and they were part of his times. Yeah, and there were. Yeah. So, so, so what you're doing is you're saying, no, when I look back at the past, I'm only going to look back at what white people think. And then what you're doing is you're defining America as only the history of white people. Mm. And then you're going, that's not racist. Well, I've got the news for you. It is racist. It was and it is. Yeah, it is. And you're telling the story not in the past. You're telling it in the present. Mm. So the way you narrate that past so if you don't tell the truth about the past it makes you easier to lie about the racism in the present if you lower the moral bar in the past it makes you it makes it easier to lower the moral bar in the present if you obliterate the viewpoint of those black ministers in the past it is equally easy then to obliterate the view of black people in the present Mm. so it's the history is past, but the telling of the history takes place in the present. The telling of the history shows how white people think now. It's not in the past. And it's no different than when the, the police write a narrative and they could write these narratives before uh, video technology, right? They could write anything that happened with a black person and then it would just be believed, right? So telling the false history of this police encounter is linked to the telling of the false history about Lincoln's racism or Jefferson's ideology defending slavery, right? It's, it's all, and then the other thing which, which just enrages me 
is people say, well, you can't tell these stories to white children. They will get too upset, right? So in Tennessee, Moms for Liberty uh, got the story of Ruby Bridges banned from their library. Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old African-American girl who in 1963 integrated to school in New Orleans. She walked through a crowd of jeering, spitting, insulting white adults to get to that school. And they are saying, oh, this is too upsetting to white kids. They don't care about the black kids, right? And if black children can learn and African-American parents teach their children about the history of African-Americans, if they can learn about what white people have done to black people in history, and they are too fragile to learn those stories, why are white children so fragile? But yeah, also, why couldn't white children go? God, Ruby Bridges, she was a brave. She was um, a hero. Yeah, you know, she helped change America. I can identify as a white child with Ruby Bridges. Yeah. Finally, these white parents who are so afraid of the fragility of their white kids, they don't care that. Every single African-American parent in America must, at a certain point, talk to their children about police brutality and police murders and say, when the police stop you, you need to do this because you may be killed. White America is not concerned at all that African-Americans have to tell their children those horrifying stories. Mm -hmm. Right. So this idea like, oh, our white children are too fragile. No. It's just you want to protect them from the truth. And and why why do white parents, some white parents, want to protect their children from uh, you know stories like these? Why is the challenging of sort of trunked history ultimately um, so difficult for some white people? Um, do you think that? It's, I mean, there are different viewpoints on this. And I, I, I guess I'm, get, I'm trying to get at the idea that some people will say that obviously it's because implicit within that would be a challenge to a supremacy that actually a lot of white people acknowledge at some level and don't want to concede on. And so in some ways, it's a sort of very clear attempt to uh, hold on to that supremacy whilst denying its very existence. Um, do you think that is the case? Yes. Well, first of all, up until recently, white people controlled the narrative. I mean, people of color were not allowed to publish stories. We're not allowed to write. We're not allowed to make films. We're not allowed to tell the his, you know, to influence curriculum. It's only in recent years that the narrative and perspective of people of color has, have even you know, begun to exist in any significant way in the culture and in our institutions. Um, the, these telling of these tales perpetuates a mythology of who white people were and white people want to believe in this mythology, right? And the German critic, uh, Walter Benjamin, Benjamin said, history is a tale of the victors, which means the people who are powerful the people who won are the people who get to tell what happened in the past. And so the struggle over who tells this tale of history is always a struggle for power. And what is happening now is 
White people have always been threatened by the truth in America. It's just that now people of color have enough power, enough numbers to actually make their story heard. And what is happening now in America is an unconscious and conscious awareness that after 2040, America will no longer be a white majority nation. Mm. And white people, like everybody else, will be a minority group. And there are certain white people who fear, oh, we will not no longer be in power. We will no longer control things. Mm-hmm. And so the, the recent eruption of white nationalism, which has always been a strain in American culture, uh, is a result in certain ways of the election of Barack Obama. Because Obama's election said to certain portions of white America, you know, you no, will no longer eventually control, be in complete control of America. Mm. And this freaked people, white people out, and then Donald Trump played on those fears and resentment. So the reason why these things are happening is actually because the power of whiteness is being challenged in ways that it hasn't previously in the culture, right? Previously, white people didn't have to worry about what people of color thought. White people didn't have to worry about the narratives of people of color because they didn't have to listen to them. They didn't even—they hardly existed. Mm. So, um, and and James Baldwin said the question of identity is a question inducing the most profound panic. A terror is primary, is a nightmare of the mortal fall, which means. That the question of your identity is almost as terrifying as questioning your own mortality. Is question is allowing for the fact that you're going to die and understanding that, like you're a limited, fallible human being. Mm. And so it's not an easy question. You know, I, I, I the one thing I, I, I will say is yes, it is difficult, which is why it's taken so long to begin to do this, to change the definition of what it means to be a white person, to change the definition and the narratives that we we tell, the whiteness tells itself. Because once you begin to do that, you will have a different country. And I'm wondering, um, over the course of the the years that we've been doing the podcast, you've had different people have different views on uh, whether or not, um, uh, you know, there is a uh, an overarching narrative that can be convincing to uh you know a white majority although soon to be a white minority um about the value in dismantling whiteness and and i i have to um sort of caveat that sentence by saying that um you know i i can see why it might be problematic in and of itself to have to try and sell the idea of dismantling whiteness or white supremacy in the first place you know i i'm i'm pretty uncomfortable with the idea that that requires um, a sales strategy. Uh, But I'm also a realist, you know, I look around and, you know, clearly there are objections and contestations of whiteness all around us. Do you, do you see there being a case that can be made to white people for the dismantling of whiteness? Or do you think we will always come up against the self-interest perspective that, well, ultimately, white people will be conceding power and why would they want to do that? I think they would want to do that because first of all, it hurts white people. 
It just does. It makes white people weaker because it's like you can't look at the truth, right? It's like you're running from the truth. The truth is America was established while there were still slaves. The truth is our, the writer of Declaration of Independence was an ideologist for slavery. The truth is Lincoln freed the slaves and Lincoln was a racist. Okay, what is so hard about that? But it, it is because you want to, but the other thing that opens up, which in many ways white people perceive on an unconscious level but don't really want to look at, is how much better it is to live in a world where everybody's accepted. And it's, it, 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 it's on the level of simply interesting. In other words, I, 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 you know, when I first came to Minneapolis, it was a mainly white town with a small portion of black uh, 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 residents who were part, part of the project, the Great Migration North that happened in the early part of the 20th century. But since then, we've had Vietnamese, Somali, Mexican, Korean, Tibetan, Bosnian, Liberian, South Asian immigrant populations come, come into the, and the culture that is created by this mixture is so much more interesting, so much more fascinating. And it's a culture where, you know, and as a writer, I'm part of this. It's, it's like, let's create a picture of America where all these people contributed to America. For all these people, because that's the truth, right? The Japanese Americans soldiers saved two million American lives during World War II. African Americans have always been on the right side of history and of our racial history, right? In every single period, African Americans, when it came to racial justice, knew what was the right path that we should go on. They were on the right side of history. And because of them, we are better as a country. We are a more moral nation, we are a more inclusive nation, and ultimately we are a more powerful nation because of the contributions. You can't imagine American music without black and American music. There's no strain of American music that's not uh, influenced by black and American music, right? That's our national identity. So why would you deny that, right? And that music came out of slavery, came out of, African culture came out of the mixing of African American African culture with American culture. That's a great American story. Why would you want to deny that? Isn't that fascinating? I mean, well, I guess the, the answer would be, I, I suppose that some people would say, well, what, what whiteness has done is just appropriate elements of that culture and claim them as their own, you know, which is the ultimate, you know, 21st century act of theft, you know, sort of uh, bastardizing elements of, of, of popular culture, whether it's music or fashion or um, any sense, particularly, I, su I suppose, in the arts um, and sort of um, putting putting a sort of whitewash on things that have a history that's much more rooted in, in African-American communities. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, your use of film and pop culture to uh, decipher mythologies of whiteness in American culture. I'm very interested in this. I um, particularly, I guess, um, as a Muslim, I always watch films that have Muslim characters in it with with the lens of, you know, oh, God, what's the overarching uh, story that's being told here about 
um, you know, us as a community, um, you know, I mean, it, it's been done to the Russians, it's been done to, uh, you know, black people in film in general, it's been, you know, I think Jews in cer at certain periods in particular, um, and certainly now, I guess, uh, Muslims are, are sort of the, the, the quintessential baddies, but I'm sure it goes much deeper th than that. And I wanted to ask you why you've chosen to focus in on pop culture and and if you can give us some examples that everyone might relate to and think oh god i've sort of absorbed that unquestioningly yeah well i use in the book one of the examples i use is the film amistad and amistad was the story about a group of african slaves who um somehow got free of their chains and took over a spanish slave ship and then they thought they were forcing the sailors to ship to sail back to Africa, but instead the sailors sailed north and they ended up in America. And then the American courts had to decide whether these men were free human beings or slaves. And the story is told entirely through the viewpoint of the Matthew McConaughey character, who's a young white lawyer named Roger Baldwin. And he tries to enlist the help of John Quincy Adams to argue the case in court. Um, but in the beginning, in the very opening of the movie, what you see is the Africans in chains, and one of them gets out of his chains, somehow breaks the chain, and then they free themselves and kill the Spanish sailors. Now, there's no subtitles. So the Africans are unintelligible. I mean, Spielberg could actually put, you know, subtitles, so you don't actually know are these men in prison because they committed a crime or because they're slaves? And their first act is an act of violence upon the white sailors. So that's what you know from the beginning of the movie, right? And then through the whole movie, it's white people deciding whether these men are free or not. So my friend, the African American novelist, Alex Pate, was asked to write the novelization of this film. And he looked at the opening scene and he went, no, I can't start here. So where does he start the tale, this African-American novelist? He starts it in Africa. And Sinke is sleeping with his wife and child in their village. So he has a village, he has a family, he has a culture, he has a language that the people around him understand. He's not intelligible. And he wakes up and he's uneasy one night and he goes out and it turns out that the lion stalks into the village and he kills the lion. So his first act is an act of violence, but it's to save his family. It's to save his village, right? But what's just as important is he's in Africa. His blackness has no meaning. There is no whiteness. There is no whiteness to judge whether he's a free person or not. He's a free person. And that's why my friend Alex Pate decides to start there. So he starts the story outside of the ontology and the categories of whiteness. He starts the narrative where Sinke is a free man. He starts the narrative where Sinke doesn't have to go to whiteness to ask if I'm free or not. Now Spielberg has black children. He's a liberal. I know his heart was in the right place, but what he's told is a white film. The narrative is my friend Alex the novelist constructed is an African-American novel. 
because the entire novel is told as much as possible through Sinke's consciousness. And the goal of his story is to free himself and to get back to his family, which is a different narrative, a different protagonist. And it, it, the narrative is structured differently. You know, Spielberg is not W.D. Griffin making The Birth of a Nation, but there's similar sort of assumptions through which he starts that story that the African-American novelist, my friend Alex Wade, sees completely differently. And would you say that that is, um, I'm, I, I you know, presume this is a continuity we see throughout uh, sort of output by uh, white directors in, in Hollywood and beyond, you know, is this sort of uh, the purveying of uh, an, an implicit or explicit, um, but I'm presuming most of the time implicit, uh, white white gaze, white whiteness in how the film story is told, who gets to speak, uh, whose stories are represented. Um, what what would you say is the impact of that, given particularly that American culture, American cinema has such a global reach? Well, what it does is it both the, the film Amistad both challenges and reinforces white supremacy, whereas. Alex's novel is a continuous challenge to white supremacy, right, and to the white narrative. And it takes, it, even though race is a political issue because it's an issue of who has power in society, it is also a psychological, spiritual issue. And what white Americans need to do is they need to change their sense of how they look at themselves. And that's, as I said before, quoting Baldwin, that's very difficult for people to do. As I say in my book, white people tend to go through uh, what I call the, you know, Helen Kubler-Ross's, the five stages of, of um, you know, of acknowledging mortality. First, there there is denial, like racism doesn't exist. There's no racism. Then there's anger. It's like, why are you bringing up racism? Why are you bringing up the past? This has nothing to do with present. You're always causing problems. Then it's bargaining. Well, yeah, there's some few bad apples, but it, it's really not the whole system. Uh, you know, yeah, we need to make some changes, but we don't really have to make real changes, right? And then there's grief. It's like, oh, this is so horrible. It's like, how can I be a white person? I, I will die of shame and guilt. Well, you're not going to die of shame and guilt, you know? I mean, it's just like, this is the truth. And you cry through it, or you grieve through it, and you go, you, you feel like, how can you people, you people of color deal with this? Well, we've been dealing with our whole history. And then finally, the fifth stage is acceptance. But the fact that this mirrors the five stages of grief that Helen Cooper-Ross identifies shows you that this is a psychological, spiritual process through which people change. It's not just the political process. And that's why sometimes it's so difficult. Uh, I can't hear you, uh, Miriam. Oh, so we, I, was, I was just saying we're going to go to the quick fire round off the back of that. But just before we do, because of what you've just said, I wanted to ask you about kind of at the, the end of the book, you do talk about kind of what white people should be doing more of to challenge whiteness. And I just wondering if you could share a few pointers um, for us. Well, I think the first thing is you have to know more. Unfortunately, that's easy. I mean, there's been so much scholarship and research into 
race in the last 30 years that hasn't existed before. Um, and But you also have to change your life. Like, if you don't have any friends of color, there's a reason for that. If you have only one or two friends of color, there's a reason for that. You have to begin living a different life. And then finally, you have to undergo a, a psychological change in identity. And what is a spiritual change? And what is so hard about it is, like I said, um, it's a difficult psychological process, but it's made more difficult by the big fact that the more you begin to speak out, the more other white people will back away from you. And, but that's how you know you're making progress, right? And the other final thing is, and this is, this is a problem with cancel culture, is that we won't allow people to make mistakes. And nobody's going to do it perfectly. Nobody knows everything about race. We all have not only things we don't know about race, we all have things we don't know we don't know. And so everyone, when dealing with this, needs to practice also humility. And this includes, I think, people of color, that as much as we may be enraged by the political, economic, and social injustices that we face, um, we also have to realize like people are human. They make mistakes. But if their spirit is willing to learn, we have to be able to forgive people. We have to be able to teach people, right? And we, we don't necessarily have to spend all our time condemning people, right? And but that, that's one of the difficulties of making these change. And if you, the more activist you become, what you discover is strength in yourself. If you go through it, you become a stronger person, right? Because you, you, you have a better sense, moral compass. You have a better sense of who you are. You become stronger and your world becomes bigger. That is the promise at the end of it, right? But it's not an easy process. Otherwise, we would live in a, in a racially just society. Um, and that's a beautiful promise to end on. Um, let's uh, go through our quick fire round, if you don't mind. So quick fire questions with quick fire responses. What is your definition of whiteness? Whiteness is an ideology which tells white people who they are, what their past has been, and how they are to think and behave in the world. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is twofold. One, it is all the economic and political reasons why we had slavery, why we had uh, Jim Crow, why Native Americans were, were um, uh, um, their land was taken away from them, why we had genocide. These are political reasons. Um, but it's also a, a psychological state. It's a state of identity. It's a way of thinking about the world. What would it take to achieve racial justice, and is that possible? I don't know if it's ever possible to achieve complete racial justice. We just have to keep working. We have to keep talking with people. And if I were to fault uh, progressives, is we have to talk to people who don't agree with us, and we have to get, uh, we have to move beyond and listen to people, right? 
Um, for for white people, they just need they need to make these changes that I've been outlining in in, in this show, um, and the, the struggle for justice, the struggle for democracy is constant. I don't think it ever ends. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism in your perspective? Yes, it's absolutely useful. First of all, because it's true. I mean, America has been structured racially since 1619. Um, whiteness has existed since 1619. So you can't explain things in the society. How do you explain that? Whites and blacks smoke marijuana at the same rate, and, and blacks are four times more likely to breast it. Why do you, how do you explain that blacks are four times more, 4.3 times more likely to have their limbs amputated for the same condition? How else do you explain these, these differences? In, why, how do you explain black employment has been always twice that of white unemployment? If you don't have these racial categories, you can't explain them, which is the whole point of it. It's like, get, let's get rid of these so we can hide all these inequalities. If you could change one thing about the way we talk about race, what would it be? Is people begin to understand that everyone doesn't know what they don't know about race. Thank you so much, David Mura. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing uh, the insights from your book and from your life and your work. Um, if people want to find out more about what you do and your ideas, is there anywhere you might like to direct them? Okay, uh, you can look to my website, www.davidmurray.com. Also, Books Forward, uh, my PR firm has a press release on it, which you can look at in the editor. So you just put David Murray and Writer, it will come up. Fantastic. Thank also, you. Also, I, I have videos on YouTube that you can, you can look at. Some YouTube videos. We do like some um, digital content. Thank you very much for that. Well, that leaves me just to thank you one last time for taking the time to speak with us here on the podcast. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you.